Hello, and welcome to Trekking Time. <laughs> yes. We'll get to why I said it that way in a moment. <laughs> this is the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. What I mean, of course, is we're taking a look at each episode of Star Trek in chronological order. That means we've gone back to the, quote, earliest Star Trek stories possible. We are currently in the first season of Enterprise. And we're also going to be taking a look at how things were in our world when these Enterprise episodes and future episodes aired originally. That means taking a deeper dive into the world that they were broadcast in or sometimes deeper dives into the episodes themselves. And for now, you're wondering who's doing all this chatting, who's doing all this talking. It's me, Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some picture books. And with me is my brother, Matthew. Matthew is the tech guy and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Before we get into this episode, just a reminder, you can directly support this podcast. You can visit trekintime.show and you'll find a spot there to make a donation to support us directly. But even if you're only able to use your ear holes or your eye holes on YouTube and help us out that way, even that is appreciated. It all helps. Matt, do you want to say a quick hello and share listener comments with us from the most recent episode? Sure. It's great to be here again. And I just want to thank everybody for all the great comments that you're leaving on the videos. And one that we wanted to highlight this week, which will explain Sean's introduction. Uh, it's from Adam Lee, I think, is how you want to say this. Um, I'd like to just note that every time I hear the name Trek in Time, I sing it in my head like, Back in time, the Huey Lewis and the News song from the Back to the Future soundtrack. Yeah. And what's I'm funny with you, is, Adam Lee. I yeah. do that too. <laughs> yes, I do that as well. I have from the very moment that we came up with that as the title of the show. And yeah. not only do I do it to the tune of Huey Lewis and the News from their song, I do it in the vein of the Saturday Night Live sketch where it was... jeez. <laughs> oh, it was set up as Michael J. Fox in an elevator with two guys who, when they recognize who he is, and it was Kevin Nealon and um, Dana Carvey, and the two of them begin to sing, back in time, over and over again to him <laughs> as they're riding in the elevator. <laughs> so that's how I sing, Trek in Time. So on to today's episode. Today we're going to be talking about Rogue Planet. This is directed by Alan Croker who was a director who directed many episodes of Star Trek in all the modern incarnations from Next Generation through Enterprise. The story is by Rick Berman, Brandon Braga, and Chris Black. And the teleplay was by Chris Black. This episode aired on March 20th, 2002. So it's almost a month of a gap between the most recent episode in February and this episode. This episode was watched by approximately 4.69 million people. So a little bit better than the previous one, but not great numbers overall. Still low. Yep. Still low. And at this point, uh, this episode, their viewership was lagging behind other sci-fi that was currently on the air. And the world that this episode landed in, well, we have a new number one song, Matthew. Oh. Yes, it's <laughs> yes. In the End by Linkin Park. This is the fourth and final single from their debut album. We also have a new number one movie. And this movie opened this week and only spent one week at number one. 
but it's a movie I'm sure people have heard of. It's a little film called Ice Age. It opened with 46 million and Ice Age was received mostly by positive reviews and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Anim- Animated Feature. It lost to Spirited Away, which I think it rightfully lost to. Spirited yes. Away is one of the greatest movies ever made. Yes. This movie, Ice Age, went on to gross over $383 million total, which that's great money by any uh, measure of any movie. And people will remember that the movie is about characters from the prehistoric era voiced by Ray Romano, Dennis Leary, John Leguizamo, uh, including the woolly mammoth, the sloth, the saber-toothed tiger, and of course the uh, scrat, the speechless saber-toothed squirrel. On television, the most watched program this week was the 74th Academy Awards and 41 million people tuned in to watch Beautiful Mind clean up it received the oscar for best film best director best supporting actress for jennifer connelly and the best actor category denzel washington walked away with best actor for training day which was one of the number one movies back when we first started reviewing the enterprise episodes and in the news the new york times on this date was reporting that the SEC had sought $500 million to settle claims against accounting firm Arthur Anderson due to its involvement in the Enron scandal. But the talks broke down, and I think this is fascinating, because the Justice Department brought charges against Arthur Anderson, so Arthur Anderson walked away from discussion. So effectively, we're in a situation where mm-hmm. the SEC cannot lay fines on an entity. They sit down at a table and just collectively determine, well, you guys did a bad thing. How much do you want to pay in penalty? (laughs) That's a great system right there. Yeah, that's not broken. Yeah, that's not broken. Imagine somebody getting arrested for, let's say, something as simple as like drug possession. That's a a law that's changing around the country. How much time do you want to spend in jail? How much time do you want to spend in jail? (laughs) And this headline caught my eye. Pummeled by dismal... Dismal poll ratings, acting governor of Massachusetts, Jane M. Swift, abruptly dropped out of the Massachusetts governor race today, rattling the politics of one of the nation's most politically obsessed states. Tearful and shaken, the normally steel-nerved Miss Swift made her announcement at the State House this afternoon, just hours before Mitt Romney, who became popular as the president of the Salt Lake Center when Salt Lake City Winter Olympics Organizing Committee announced his plans to challenge Miss Swift for the Republican nomination. And at that point, what was Mr. Romney known for? Well, he was basically known for being president of the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics Organizing Committee and a failed Senate campaign. Yep. So this was the emergence of Mr. Romney onto a political stage that would eventually lead to him running for national office against Barack Obama. So today's episode, Rogue Planet. Matt, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of this episode? Sure. It's while exploring an uncharted planet, Enterprise crew members encounter a group of aliens who are hunting indigenous creatures for recreation. It's a very simple plot. What I I really like about the synopsis is it boils down the episode into it's, it's the old elevator pitch, you know, situation. You've got a, a, a book, a novel, or a movie, or a TV show idea. Can you distill it down 
into the simplest terms so that you could, in an elevator ride, pitch it to a producer. Yeah. The, the key, though, is that your pitch is supposed to make it sound interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think one of the interesting things this about one. this synopsis yeah. is yep. it really does underscore something special about this episode. This episode is pretty boring. <laughs> that was my take. How I, I did you feel say, about this episode? I don't. I, it, I didn't find it boring. Um, it just didn't have a spark to it. You know, it, it was dealing with I thought interesting ideas, but it wasn't um, lively. I guess would be the way I would describe it. But I don't think yeah. it was boring. I thought it was just kind of like an okay average, just okay. Yeah, I think that we've had a number of weeks where we have critiqued episodes um, where we've gotten pretty you know, critical of certain elements. Uh, last week's episode in particular, which had an overly sexualized conversation around T'Pol by two of the yep. main characters. Stuff like that. They were just like, okay, this is, like, this is not okay. This, this is not a good thing to have in an episode. I think my take on this episode is kind of swinging within the same vein of why well, definitely have ideas about how it should have been revised, but not because of problematic content, but just because of unfulfilled potential in some cases. It seemed mm-hmm. very first drafty to me. Some of the ideas just seemed to be like, oh, this needed to be much further developed. Yes, yes. And in other places, just simply from a storytelling perspective, I thought like, well, this isn't good storytelling. This is just like kind of there. And there, there were yeah, a lot of good ideas. Yeah. There were a lot of good ideas. Like there's some really good ideas in here, but it was the almost like they were trying to do too much. And if mm. they just focused in on a couple of like removed one of the plot points, which we'll be getting into. Yeah. It's like there was too many plot points to remove one of those threads and focus on just one or two threads. And they could have created a stronger, more compelling storyline, but yeah. they were jumping around a little too much between three or four storylines. And it was kind of like, okay, too much. And you're going too skin deep. And I, I like your description of it's a little first drafty. Yeah. There needed some editing <laughs> to winnow it down. So let's dive into the plot. Uh, and we won't dive too deep because this is a pretty shallow one. Um, a planet appears on sensors adrift and without a solar system. So Captain Archer has Subcommander T'Pol scan the planet and Lieutenant Reed detects a ship near the equator. Just right off the bat, the setup, I really appreciated the fact that they show this planet and the names of the various producers at the beginning of this episode included some of the producers from previous episodes and a director of a previous episode, Decker, who has worked as the science advisor on the program. I really felt like this episode, right from the beginning, sets up nicely that they had scientific advisement about how this planet should be not only depicted, but what it could have as far as if it has a biosphere that allows for life, what would that be like? Yeah, that's actually the kind of deeper dive I wanted to get into, which is the whole rogue planet. And specifically, one of the story editors was Andre Bor- uh, Bormanis, mm-hmm. who worked on this. And he's the science advisor. 
And he's credited as kind of being the brainchild behind this episode because he's the one that suggested a rogue planet and the science behind it. And he's also the one that suggested uh, the hunting, which mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the, the part where we're kind of like, yeah. Womp, womp. yeah but the the that whole aspect of it he kind of proposed all that and it was taken and fleshed out by the team that you're talking about but right we can get into the science of of it in a minute so the captain decides to put together an away team and right off the bat some of the things that stood out as for me like this is demonstrating smart thinking around the episode mm-hmm. put the sh- put the planet up on view screen the planet is completely black Yep. You see the barest rim of it with the star field behind it. It doesn't have a sun, so it's not illuminated. Great. They get down to the planet. They have to wear little eyepieces to give themselves night vision. Great. It's hard to see this episode as much as I have complaints about it, and we'll get into those. Those largely are about plot. I thought that the filming of this, the depiction of this, is nicely done and goes back to something we've talked about in some of the earliest episodes. They seem to have gone with an almost, this is rustic campfire stories. This yeah. is people sitting around a campfire at p- points, literally in this episode, trying to reassure each other about their safety. Yep. And I think it, it's well it's well depicted in that way. They come down to a planet. They have a difficult time landing. Archer is bragging a little bit about himself at a couple yeah. points in this episode. I thought that was a nice back and forth with Reed. Yeah. Uh, as they're coming in and Archer says, I, I've always bragged that I could land with my eyes closed and I guess I'm going to get tested now. And Reed kind of jabs back with a little bit of a tease toward the captain and they do land and they land in a spot that T'Pol finds where she says the landing site is barely bigger than the shuttle and Archer confidently says that's not a problem I like that's the brag all, that's all I need yeah that's all I need uh, <laughs> I haven't got time that, to bleed I was about to say that ranks yeah. up there for that for me yeah. it's like oh, I got time to bleed and they land they get out of the ship and it is dark as uh, you can barely see them and they give them the glowing eyepieces almost as a stand-in for being able to see the characters. Can, can can I pause there for a second? Yeah. We've never seen these eyepieces before. And we will never see and them again. And we will never see them again. Yes. And I'm thinking, those are pretty cool pieces of tech. Why would we not be seeing these more often? Because <laughs> how many episodes do we see them going into a dark ship that has no lights or anything? Those things would probably be very, very good for those situations, but we'll never see them again. It, it there's an ongoing problem with that when you do a prequel like this. I'm 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 even talking just on Enterprise. Just oh, Enterprise. I know I know I know you mean just on Enterprise, <laughs> but I'm like I like big picture. That yeah. is an ongoing problem that Enterprise and shows that try to do what Enterprise is doing are going to run into again and again because they almost have a hand tied behind their back when it yep. comes to coming up with cool sci-fi concepts because something like this does stand out as how come we've never seen this again? This is not only tech that Enterprise should use again and again. Mm -hmm. It should have been something that should have been depicted in numerous Star Trek shows of the ability to put on tech equipment to augment the reality around you. I mean, here we are in 2021 and they're talking about augmented reality becoming a reality for us now. Yeah. So 
doing it in the future in the sci-fi show definitely should have been an option. So they land, they go out into the, the woods, they're looking for signs of life and trying to figure out, okay, where might these aliens be? Why can we not detect them? Where is their ship? Where is their camp? They split into two groups and go off. And one of the groups is with Reed is jumped. Uh, he and T'Pol are effectively captured by aliens that they uh, encounter who are wearing full camo and it looks very much like what it is. It's a hunting party. Mm -hmm. They are brought back to the campsite where they find the captain and Sato have been more pleasantly meeting the other part of the hunting party. And they find out that these aliens are called the Eska and they introduce themselves as a hunting party that comes to this planet called the Kala and they hunt. And through the episode, there are a couple of references to how the hunting is organized. And I thought it was a very interesting depiction of the Eska in that they are depicted as being, we're not supposed to be super crazy about them. We're supposed to see them as a little arrogant. We're supposed mm -hmm. to see them as brash and maybe a bit cruel right off the bat. We learn more about the levels of cruelty as the episode reveals more about itself toward the end. But right off the bat, we are clearly supposed to think of them as like, oh, they're, they're a little barbaric in how and, they deal with the Kala. And deceptive. Like... This is actually something I did not like. They were all doing that classic, we have to convey to the audience that they're holding something back. So it was yeah. this over-the-top deceptiveness, and it was so blatantly obvious they were holding information back. I was just thinking Archer and the rest of the crew would be able to know that they're holding something back because right. it's plain as day, and yet nobody picks up on that. It's like, come on, come on. Right. <laughs> There's also, for me, one of the... The moments where as I was watching this, I was like, oh, come on. Do we need to like show that level of looking down our nose at people when the Eska reveal very quickly, like we are a hunting party. Archer says snidely, oh, we gave up hunting on Earth a hundred years ago. A couple problems with that statement. That statement indicates that by the year 2050, hunting on Earth... <laughs> will no longer take place. I'm not going to happen. I'm usually a betting man, but I would bet every ounce of blood in my body that That's in the year happening. 2050, there will still be hunting on Earth. Not only does recreational hunting not appear to have a bad future ahead of it, I hate to point out to the writers at this point, not everybody hunts for sport. There yes. are people on Earth who hunt for food. There are people who hunt for subsistence living. So the idea that a human would look down their nose in this way and say that only 50 years in our future, hunting mm -hmm. no longer exists. All right, settle down. <laughs> <laughs> but second of all, we've seen Archer now have first contact meetings with a couple of different species. And he seems to have a sense of like, okay, how should this be going? How should we present our best side? 
and he's just literally made a first contact meeting with the Esca. And one of the first well, things he does is criticize them to their face about well, something that clearly is an important cultural part of their, their life. I, I didn't take it that way because they're coming across as very brash and just forthright. And so was he. So it's like he's in kind saying to them, we've moved beyond this. But then the next thing he says is, but tastes great and thanks for your hospitality. So he's basically saying to them, it's like, we have differences here, but teach his own is what he's basically saying to them. And I thought that was actually, I thought that was actually kind of nice. It was an interesting portrayal of him being brash right back, but then also being conciliatory at the same time with the next statement that he said. I think you and I may and, even disagree on that. Yeah, you and I disagree on that point. Yeah. But there was then later on in their discussion around their hunting, I liked the fact that they were then brought back into better light in the fact that they refer to for sustainability they can mm-hmm. only hunt once every certain number of years and they have a small window of time to hunt and i thought that that was very interesting kind of yeah. depicting like okay we hunt but we're not just showing up here like every weekend and blowing the shit out of the woods it's being done in a way that the the place that they come from practices sustainable hunting i thought that was an interesting twist so they have this dinner. They share uh, thoughts about how long this has been going on. It's been going on for nine generations that the Esca have been coming to this planet. And they decide that the away team, uh, the captain appears to make it basically almost open for people aboard the Enterprise who might want to come down and camp to, to mm-hmm. visit because we have another case of for reasons that don't really stand out as making a lot of sense, Trip decides to leave the Enterprise and come down and stay the night in the woods. It's fine that he's there. He's one of the captain's best friends. He's there, I think, more as a foil yes. for the captain to be one of the captain's oldest friends who knows him very well. So that as the captain is having the experiences he's going to have, we have somebody on hand who's like, I know you better than most people. And I know you're not somebody who can't be trusted to tell the truth or to understand reality. I think that's what his role here is. Because having the chief engineer come down and spend the night in the woods, again, Makes no sense. doesn't make yeah. a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And what also doesn't make any sense is that Sato, who starts the episode going down to the planet and introducing herself to the Eska, she's like, yeah, I don't like bugs, so I'm going to go back aboard the ship. And it's just another case of like what are you doing with Sato? Like what you have a group of people who are literally speaking an alien tongue. You'd think you'd want your communications officer who's an expert in being able to translate on hand, but and maybe, and maybe an exobiologist. Yeah. Just saying, (laughs) you're a rogue. Just throwing that out there. Maybe just Uh, instead you keep your, your chief security officer, uh, who basically wants to go hunting. You keep him there. You read your chief engineer, and when he goes on the hunt, when he goes on the hunt, I did love how he says to the captain, "Yeah, I promise, I won't kill anything." Yeah, and the way he said it, when I was reading up, doing some research on the background of this, they, the director and other people on the crew said that he wasn't directed to give the line reading that way. He did the intonation on his own that kind of threw a question mark on it, as if it was like him, yeah. I'm not going to kill anything kind of a gave it a tone of like, is he or isn't he? Cause it's yeah. like, it's, he's the kind of guy that might actually want to go hunting and actually shoot an animal. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
So they they decide to set up camp for the night. And as everybody else, you know, Reed has his hunting party the next morning. So he turns in and Trip is like, that's a good idea. I'm going to turn in too to Paul. She's going to retire. And Archer decides that he's going to stay up. And it literally turns into a scene of him being asleep by the camp campfire. And he hears a woman's voice calling his name. And he leaves the campfire area and finds a clearing where there's a woman with blonde hair standing in the woods and she runs away. Nobody truly seems to believe that Archer saw what he saw. And that includes the Esca. This is one of the writing elements of the episode that feels very first drafty. We later learn stuff about the Esca and how they the purpose for their hunt, why they're here, and what they know about what they're hunting, the experience that Archer had should have raised a different response from them, I feel, yes. than yes. what is depicted. Basically, everybody's just like, hmm, Archer, you seem a little bit out of your head. What you saw couldn't possibly have happened. So they decide uh, Archer is trying his best to not overly convince anybody about the rightness of what he experienced, but he just kind of like puts it in the background and is going to conduct more of the mission as they've planned with Reed is going off with the hunting party. He and Paul are going to go investigate a geothermal shaft where one of the things early in the episode, and again, this is some of the hard science that I thought was really cool in the episode this planet, which is not around a star, obtains the heat that it has through geothermal activity. So there's lots of volcanoes active in the region. All that heat coming out is where the planet's energy is coming from. So they are going to go investigate this. And while they're doing that, Archer again experiences seeing the woman. And again, she disappears. While he's talking with her, she has this experience of, in very cryptic wording, saying to him, basically, there, there's danger. I'm talking to you because you're not like the others. The others are dangerous. And we cut to a scene happening at the same time in which the hunting party has detected what somebody refers to as a wraith. And as they are pursuing this wraith, they seem to be trying to keep Reed in the dark about what it is that they've seen. Again, they know what they're trying to hunt. They know what they're doing there. Reed showed an interest in going out with them. They are clearly trying to keep something hidden. Why would they take him along if they're hunting something that they don't want these humans to know that they're hunting? If they don't want the humans to know that they're hunting this thing, why do they not want the humans to know that they're hunting this thing? There's a bunch of layers of like of unexplained and unexplored, literally like questions of yep. what is the purpose of the deceit here? What is the thing that they feel they are hiding? It's pretty clear at this point that the Wraith experience and the Archer experience are in fact the same experience. Archer is experiencing something, some sort of contact from a thing on the planet that sees these hunters as a problem. And then we see the hunting party going after a thing which attacks Brazan, one of the, the hunting party, and critically injures him. They get him back to the campsite. 
Archer is very quick to contact the ship, tells these people, I've got a doctor aboard. He's been alerted to your need. And they decide to get Burzan back to the Enterprise so that he can be healed up. Burzan's experience aboard the ship is not depicted at all. Next time we see him, he's back. He's feeling fine. The doctor has been able to provide the treatment that he needed. But he also reveals to the members of the crew that he's discovered something in the wound that doesn't make sense. It's basically uh, chromosomes that appear to be shifting, almost as if they don't know what they are supposed to be. So this is introducing the idea of shapeshifters into the Star Trek universe. And we've seen shapeshifters in Star mm -hmm. Trek before. We've seen shapeshifters in uh, the Undiscovered Country. We've seen shapeshifters in Deep Space Nine. This is the first time we're seeing it introduced into Enterprise. So here we have the return to the planet. Archer once again is reached out to by this woman and Archer has a conversation prior to this with Trip, in which he talks about his mother's love of poetry and how when he was a child there was one poem in particular he loved hearing and this for me was a scene where okay you had this at hand this should have been the lens through which you rewrote the entire episode. Yep. Bingo. Because effectively it is an old story of a fisherman catches a fish that turns into a beautiful woman. She gets away from him and the man spends the rest of his life looking for this fish. And a metaphor for pursuit of perfection, pursuit of a dream, pursuit of the unobtainable. Yep. That as a lens for this entire episode could have made this not only very compelling, but it could have made Archer's experience, and I think this is what they were trying to get to, it could have made it very moving. Yes. And I feel like they were trying to get to a moving sort of heartfelt reveal of what is Archer's deepest character. He's a man driven by his passion to seek out newness, seek out the unknown. And there's a lot of passion in that. And especially for Scott Bakula as an actor, I think at the end of this episode, he's doing his damnedest yes. to really invite that sort of reading. But the first part of the episode doesn't give him a whole lot to hold on to. And there's a lot of distraction here from the other story elements. May I know you mentioned earlier in, in this talk um, you feel like there's too many plots. What would you have excised? The hunting. It's like, it's yeah. honestly, it's, it's not that you would have gotten necessarily rid of the hunting, but like the, the amount of time you gave it would have been way less because the storyline around the captain, this Yates poem that he's talking about, this vision of a woman of perfection that he's got in his mind that this thing taps into and pulls back out of him. It's such a powerful symbol. It's very, it's just a wonderful thread, a character development for him. And you don't need a action-packed episode to have it be super engaging. And this would have made it very engaging watching Captain Archer in this 
plot line being established in the beginning and then paid off by the end. Instead, what happens is what you just described is like halfway in the episode, they kind of drop this in and it's like, whoa, that's way more interesting than anything you've shown me before. And the payoff kind of works, but it would have been a much stronger punch if they had actually set that up in act one instead of dropping it on you at the end of act two. <laughs> it was like, it was basically right around the end of act two, beginning of act three is when they dropped this on you. And it's like, whoa, that was way more interesting than what everything I've been watching up until this point. So the whole hunting aspect, Reed going hunting, the it's like that could have been the element of danger that could have just been the background where they met them. And they're like, okay, well, we'll stay over here and you guys stay over there. And then that's it. And then the you stay with Archer and his plot line and the hunters are just like somewhere off on the planet doing their thing. There's still the danger, but you're not focused on them where the, the, the episode ended up coming across as if um, the episode was meant to be anti-hunting or something like yeah. that. It's like, that is not the message of this episode at all. And yet they gave so much screen time and effort to these, the aliens that you're talking to and why they're hunting and the deceptiveness. It creates a whole plot. That's just kind of dumb and pointless yeah. And the more interesting stuff, they kind of shortchanged. Yeah, I don't think I would go as far as you suggest in excising the hunting to the point where it's it's happening off, off uh, the main plot to that point. But I think I definitely would have done away with a lot of the time spent following the actual hunt. That's what and I mean. I think, Get and I think the experiences yes. with the hunters should have given them a a tighter cultural necessity to be doing what they're doing. There's meaning behind what they're doing. It's not just about, it's depicted very much as like, they're just cracking open buds and chugging beer and like, yeah, we're out here to kill. And it could have been a little bit more of cultural meaning to them as to why hunting is important. And then their commenting about what they're hunting should have been first and foremost to talk about the wraith to warn the humans and to paul about the wraith that the wraith is a trickster that the wraith is a thing not to be trusted it should have been almost like the ghost story introduction at the beginning to say one of the things we're looking for is a thing that can't be trusted it's able to see into your mind it is able to show you things that it shouldn't be able to and it will do whatever it has to in order to trick you and it's extremely dangerous as a result so our pursuit of this thing is the ultimate challenge for us exactly and then when archer begins to be teased out by well, if this is a trickster, why is it showing me a woman I feel like I know? Why is it showing me something that I find harmless in this Mm -hmm. way and it doesn't seem to go the next step of becoming harmful? His initial introduction to the woman in the woods could have been one of fear, feeling compelled to follow it but not wanting to and really having to be teased into his first interaction instead of what is shown, which is, he is always pursuing it. He is always on its side. He's just after it because this is great. Right. As opposed to him overcoming some kind of fear. And when he overcomes that fear, then learning like, oh, you're the wraith. You're the thing that they've been here hunting. Clearly there's an intelligence here that they're not willing to admit. And then the point of interaction between the hunters and the humans could have been not about 
is it safe or is it not safe? Are you right or are you not right? But the debate that is passed over far too briefly, which is when T'Pol says of the wraith, it sounds like you're talking about an intelligence here. Mm-hmm. And the ESCA quickly dismiss it as not intelligence the way we'd measure it. Yep. That should have been a larger conversation. That could have been the larger, like how do you measure intelligence? If you are pursuing a lion, the lion is going to do what it can to best you. And the ESCA should have been making that argument. A dangerous creature will do what it can to best you. They have the one scene where they tell the story of a previous hunting party where eight hunters thought they had cornered some of the wraith and the wraith were able to turn the tables on them and take out five of the hunters and only three people returned that story could have stayed in fact i would have put that story at the beginning of the episode because that then makes this dark strange world seem dangerous in a way and compelling in a way it also makes the wraith sound like they are setting honeypots to lure you into traps and so his resistance to going after the woman the woman could be the honeypot and he knows he shouldn't be doing this, but he's still drawn to her anyway. It's like it gives that level of danger and excitement yes. to it. Once again, you're, you and I are kind of rewriting an episode. <laughs> Drastically rewriting an episode. But it's, it, this, is, this is part of why I'm a little more, I think I'm more kind on it than you are. Because there were still good ideas that were dropped in this episode. And even though it, they kind of botched a little bit of the storytelling, I still think it was, it was an average, okay episode. I, I kind of half enjoyed it it wasn't like i thought it was the most boring thing i'd seen um on star trek it's for me the the boredom is the first 25 minutes of yeah Yeah. like there's not like you're not giving me a lot of stuff to hook into and by the time i felt hooked which was at the very end when uh in discussions with flocks archer and flocks discover that there is a chemical signature which is Mm -hmm. what the hunters are using to track the wraith. The hunters have, through their own technology, been able to mask their uh, various biosigns, which is why the sensors from the Enterprise, they're not able to find the hunters because the hunters are masked. And one of the things that Archer says at this point is, I can't stop them from hunting, but maybe I can level the playing field a little bit. So Phlox is able to help develop something that the wraith can use to mask their chemical signature. And by using that, they're able to then do what they do, change shape, hide, and and become a tree for a moment and become a wild boar another and to be able to actually get away. In some cases, turn the tables as they do in this episode. Again, they turn Mm -hmm. the tables on the hunters and they depict the hunters as being especially panicky by just showing them firing wildly into the woods just trying to scare the wraith and the wraith is able to to get away to attack them and to get away and the episode ends with the hunting party unsuccessfully returning to their campsite where archer and again this goes back to something you pointed out at the beginning of the episode people are trying to be snide and sarcastic without really hiding it. And Archer's very, very clear in his like, so how'd your hunting party go? And (laughs) and basically (laughs) practically saying like, I've helped the Wraith now be able to get away from you. Yep. Felt unnecessary, felt a little too, uh, I don't know. 
again, looking down your nose at some of the characters and I would have appreciated a little bit more for the Eska of a little more dignity for them yeah, uh, going into and coming out of the story and their confusion could have been enough. Like them coming back and saying like, how could the Wraith have possibly done that? He was right there. It was right there. How did it surprise us in that way? Mm-hmm. Archer goes off into the woods where once again he meets the woman. And at this point, he's confident that he knows who the woman is. She is the imagined, childlike, imagined figure that he had when listening to that poem. So he is now looking at her as this actual embodiment of a thing that he thought as a child he would never be able to touch. And he reaches out and they hold hands for a moment. And this is what I was referring to earlier about Bacula really at this moment is playing <laughs> this as a I'm revealing Archer's innermost desire to be able to, in a sense, reach out and touch the face of God, to touch the unattain- unobtainable. And he's holding the hands of this woman and pulls himself close to the point where you think for a moment, might they actually kiss? It's this depiction of of passion, but it's not passion tinged with sexuality it is just a moment of of him looking at her in a way that almost says like i just want to stand here and stare at you yeah in a way that is moving but the rest of the episode hasn't done a really good job i don't think of making that story arc the primary story arc and that's Mm -hmm. and it's weird because i say that while there is really no b plot it's the only plot that it's I found only any kind thread, of time yeah, to. The only yeah. plot in this episode is everything we've just described. There's no B storyline. And yet it's not about Archer having overcome. If this was more about not only the pursuit of the unobtainable, but the sublime nature of that pursuit, his fear at the beginning, him being warned away from the rocks, so to speak, almost like the mermaid song, don't go too close to the wraith. They're dangerous. They will get you. His early experience with it being terrifying for him, then him overcoming that terror to understand more about them, to want to help them. Then this final scene would have all sorts of wrapped up emotions of he could still be a little bit scared in this moment. He's holding the hands with a creature that is not actually a human woman. He doesn't know what he's holding the hand of. Up to this point, he hasn't actually seen one of these things. So... As the woman then turns and drifts off to the woods and turns back into her actual self, which is like a giant slug slug creature yeah, yeah. that coyly looks over its, I know it doesn't have a shoulder, but it does turn around and glance yeah. at him again. And he is looking at it as it goes off. Uh, it does have an impact, but it could, it, what I felt was, oh, that had an impact that could have been more. I wish it had had that deeper impact. I wish he had said to her, I want to see you. Like, yeah. had him do something like that moment. But even though he didn't say that when it turned into the slug and <laughs> looked back at him, Bacula's acting, once again, he was trying so hard. Yeah. His expression was great because there was this brief flicker of like, oh, what the hell is that? And then yeah. just once again went right back into the he almost looked like he was in awe of just yeah. like, I can't believe what I've just experienced. This is amazing. And it's like clear, this is why he's out here. Yeah. This is why he's doing what he's doing. 
And it could have included at the very end him saying, I'm so glad I didn't kiss that. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the, all of those elements that were not there, there was the promise of them possibly yes. being there. And that's what led me at the beginning of this to say, this felt very first drafty. It felt like with a little bit of pushing, as opposed to some of the other episodes we've talked about, it feels like some of the other episodes, we've really gone in with a mm-hmm. weed whacker and we've chopped out stuff and said like, oh, this shouldn't have been done like this at all. This one didn't feel like it would have required all that much effort to really kind of heighten some of the moments that are present, but just bring them better into focus. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you said it felt like a first draft or a rough draft and it just needed a little more editing, a little more time in the oven. And they could have teased it into something much better than it was. Um, but the the one thing I wanted to touch on that I thought was really cool is the title of the episode, Rogue Planet. I was fascinated by just the Rogue Planet-ness of it. So I did a yeah. quick look up to see like, how many rogue planets are there? Have we found, how many have we found so far? And what I thought was really fascinating was just based on calculations, um, they were, the belief is that there could be trillions of rogue planets throughout the Milky Way alone. And uh, we've actually discovered a bunch and there's different techniques that have been used, something called microlensing observations in astrophysics. And there was a paper put out by um, astrophysicist uh, Tokihiro Sumi in, from Osaka University in 2011 talking about how they use microlensing and how they've discovered a bunch of potential microplanets. And just from, uh, what was it, 1998, OTS-44 was discovered. And they believe there are multiple rogue planets around OTS-44, almost like kind of like almost a disk of rogue planets floating out there by themselves. And there's dozens that have been discovered just over the past decade of these rogue planets out there. And the belief is, just like in the episode, that not all of them are just going to be cold balls of ice, that some of them could have, an, the way planets are formed, they have enough heat inside of them and enough like volcanic activity that they could heat themselves for a millennia. So there is a possibility that these things are just floating out there, sad little planets mm-hmm. that actually have life on them. And they're just, that's just blows my mind. And I find that so cool. Yeah. And one of the things that I found was there was one uh, in this past decade, I think it was, that was discovered that had an exomoon. The first one they discovered that actually has its own moon. Mm. And when I told my wife that, I was like, they discovered this rogue planet that has an exomoon. And she went, that's so sad. Yeah. It's like this this sad planet with a sad little moon going around. Yeah. But it's almost like, well, at least they have each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Rogue Planets, uh, it does, it taps into some kind of, you know, lost at sea, like on a desert planet or a desert island, that kind of, like it it suddenly strikes a very strange chord in me. And, Mm -hmm. and, immediately after seeing this, this episode, I, my mind went to a bunch of things like, um, I, an astronomy show I saw once uh, at a New York museum was about the creation of the moon, our moon. And they believe that it was caused by the early proto-Earth, which was much bigger than our Earth actually is now, was struck by a rogue planet that went through it and knocked a huge, it blew the rogue planet up and took a portion of the mass of Earth with it 
which then became the disk around the reforming Earth that turned into the moon. So the moon, if it had formed differently, would have a different mass than mm-hmm. what it does. And it's because the way it formed was largely as a collection of already cooling material that was then ejected into space by the impact. I think that's fascinating. I'm drawn to depictions of rogue planets. I mean, you and I used to watch Thunder of the Barbarian. Who can forget the opening sequence is that a rogue planet ripped between the earth and the moon, taking away, you know, causing tidal problems and destroying the environment of the earth. And that's what the setup of that show was. As a kid, that sparked my imagination in ways I can't even begin to describe. And for me, some of the uh, the rogue planetness of this took me back to uh, something I've talked to Matt about in the recent past. Um, it's a TV show that is one that I go back to again and again. Mm-hmm. It is one of those shows which I consider a beautiful failure. It is yeah. a thing that is like, wow, this is really not very good, but I love it. So it's the show Space 1999, which if anybody is interested in checking it out, it is available. You can find it for free on YouTube. Um, There are actual, you can find the official Shout Factory web page on YouTube has access to these episodes for free. So you can actually watch it feeling like you're watching a licensed thing. So you're not actually stealing the content. There are also versions of it that are just stolen. People have uploaded the video and you're watching it from people's channels. You can also find it through some of the free apps like Pluto TV or um, it may not be available on Tubi right now, but I do know it is available on a free TV app called Stir, S-T-I-R-R. And that's one of the ways that I watch it. And it is a show that is about in the year 1999, there is a nuclear waste facility on the moon that has an accident. The explosion there is so large, it actually rockets the moon away from the earth, taking it out of its orbit and propelling it into deep space. And it is the story of the people on the space station, Station Alpha, who are now freewheeling it through space. It is a Doctor Who-ish, trippy... 1970s, 1975 to 1977. It stars Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. And some of the episodes are super duper trippy and some of them are super duper silly. I recently sent Matt a link to one saying, you got to check this out because it it is nutso. It was bizarre. (laughs) It was a bizarre episode. Uh, For anybody who's interested in that I, I encourage you to go check that out. It's it's trippy fun. Um, it's the kind of thing that if, especially if I'm not feeling great and I'm like, I need something that's going to be kind of quiet, I can fall asleep to it's, and not worry about it. It's that kind of show where I'm happy to watch people walking around a space station, then a hairy monster comes out and then I fall asleep. It's it's science fiction that's low on science and high on the fiction. It's, the like, fiction. it's like this, this would never play out this way, but okay. <laughs> I also wanted to give a quick shout out to two actors in this episode of Enterprise. One is Eric Pierpont. He plays one of the hunters and he is best known as having played George Francisco in the TV series 
of Alien Nation. So that TV show was a spinoff of a movie which originally starred Mandy Patinkin in the role. And I encourage people to check that out. I think it was one of those TV shows, uh, I believe it was on Fox. Fox has a very proud history of coming up with very compelling sci-fi shows that they then give zero chance to actually develop an audience and then cancel them far too early. Yep. And I think Alien Nation was one of those. It's a, a cop buddy setup, but one of the one of the cops is an alien. And the other actor I wanted to talk about was the mysterious woman in the woods, played by Stephanie Nisnik. And sadly, I discovered that she was best known for her a role in Everwood. She was also in shows like Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, Profile, or Sliders, Jag, Frasier. Uh, but sadly, she died a couple of years ago due to alcohol abuse. So hmm. a kind of sad ending to her story. Matt, next time we're going to be talking about the episode Acquisition. Do you have any forecasts about what we can expect from that? I think somebody is going to acquire something. Mm, I think you might be in the right vein there. Mm. To our listeners, please let us know if you were in the final scene with Archer and you knew that the creature you were looking at was a giant slug creature, <laughs> would you have kissed it anyway? <laughs> Let us know in the comments. You can reach out to us through the contact information or you can just scroll down if you're on YouTube and leave a comment below. Before we sign off, Matt, is there anything you'd like to remind our listeners about? Uh, check out uh, my YouTube channel, Vice Versa with Matt and Ricky that I do with Ricky Roy from the 2-Bit Da Vinci channel. We do live streaming every Thursday afternoon uh, talking about the latest news in sustainable technologies. As for me, if anybody's interested in checking out any of my writing, they can find my website, seanfarrell.com. They can also look for my books at any bookstore. You can find them at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookseller. I encourage supporting your local bookstore whenever possible, but the big boys will also have it. And if anybody has any comments or corrections, please do reach out. Contact information is below, and on YouTube, you can just scroll below the video we love hearing from everybody uh, we get lots of encouragement which is terrific we also appreciate the occasional correction pointing out that that wasn't a klingon you idiot <laughs> please do remember to subscribe to like the episode to share it widely with your friends and strangers and to come back next time thanks so much for listening everybody we'll talk to you next time